very much, Ben, um, and a warm welcome for me as well. Please keep uh, your Bibles open uh, tonight as we look at God's Word. I'll be walking us through the passage, but also to make sure that I'm speaking from um, God's Word as we um, look at this passage in Genesis 21. I know Ben's just prayed, but let me pray um, as well for our time together. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for what we find here uh, about you. And we pray um, as we look at your word tonight, you would uh, be working for your Holy Spirit. We pray that I might be faithful uh, to your word and that you would be working in our hearts, um, that we might be able to grow in love and knowledge of you if we are Christians. Uh, And if we are not, that we would be able to see um, more about you and that we'd be encouraged uh, to reflect on that and to Um, to respond to that as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we live in a world today where I think uh, many people are very cynical about promises. And I think there's a couple of reasons um, that that is the case. I think one of the first reasons is the fact that we're so used to having things very, very quickly. We want our 4G to work as quickly as possible and very quickly. We uh, don't want to wait for our fast food. We want it to be immediate. We want our next day delivery to arrive on time all of the time. And we also live in a world where we have imperfect promise keepers. So there are many times, and many of you may have experienced this, that you've been maybe let down by a promise not kept. There's been divorces. There's been false advertising. There's fraud all in the news, which can lead to this idea or a cynical attitude towards promises. And one of the characters in uh, a book called Italian Shoes by um, Henning Mankell, one of the characters speaks about promises. We're always being made promises, the character says. You make them yourself and you listen to others giving them. Politicians are always going on about providing a better quality of life for people as they get older. At a health service, which nobody ever gets bed sores, Banks promise you high interest rates. Some food promises to make you lose weight if you eat it. And body creams guaranteed old age with fewer wrinkles. Life is quite simply a matter of cruising along in your own little boat for a constantly changing but never-ending stream of promises. And tonight we come uh, to the life of Abraham as we have been in uh, the series so far. And we have in Abraham a man who's waiting on the promises of God. The promises that he's been given include blessing. They include being given a land. They also include having descendants. And many of these promises are actually only going to be possible if Abraham has a son. And God actually specifically promises Abraham twice that he will have a son. But this promise isn't like an Amazon Prime delivery. It doesn't come the next day or even in a couple of hours. Abraham actually instead has to wait 25 years for this promise to be fulfilled. Each year that passes makes it seem even more unlikely that this promise will be able to be fulfilled as him and his wife become older and older. And throughout the series that we have been in, um, looking at the life of Abraham, we've seen some times where he has specifically laughed at the promises. He's not been sure, he's not been able to see how God would be able to actually fulfill them. We've also seen him and his wife Sarah try to actually fulfill them themselves. He has an illegitimate son, Ishmael, who will be mentioned later in this passage. And just last week, we saw, as Daph was preaching to us, that he actually didn't trust in one of God's promises to protect him. 
he was um, meeting a king and he said that his wife was actually a sister because he didn't trust that God would be able to provide for them. And that really draws a question that we'll be looking at tonight of how God will actually fulfill his promises. And we're going to see that from three different points in the text. So first of all, we're going to see proved, and we're looking at verses uh, 1 to 7. Then provided in verses 8 to 21, and then finally prospered in verses 22 to 34. So first of all, proved. And we have this question of how God will respond to Abraham and Sarah because they've consistently struggled and repeatedly struggled to believe that he can fulfill his promises. And we actually aren't left in suspense at all in this chapter. Uh, It wouldn't actually make for a great Hollywood film. We immediately are cut to the chase. If you look down with me at verse 1, we see immediately that God proves that he keeps his promises. Look at how it's highlighted three times in the first two verses. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his, own, uh, in his old age at the very time God had promised him. You see, Abraham and Sarah were way past the age of physically being able to actually have children themselves. There was no way that they would be able to do that, but God had brought about the birth at exactly the time that he had said. Now, Abraham and Sarah may well have chosen God to have delivered slightly earlier. Maybe uh, if they had had the choice, they probably wouldn't have wanted to wait 25 years. How many of us would like to wait for a promise for 25 years? But God delivers in his perfect timing when exactly he says And it's interesting to note that Abraham's direct response to God keeping his promise is direct obedience. If you look down, firstly, he acknowledges that it's God's work. He names his son as God commands. And then he also circumcises the boy. And this obedience is actually really in contrast to what we've seen so far in the life of Abraham. Because so often we've seen him actually struggling to obey God's plan and to obey his promises, and yet he responds here with obedience. Now, we read that Abraham was a man of faith. We see that in the New Testament. He's commended for that. He's in the, uh, the hall of fame, so to speak, for faith. But we do also see throughout Genesis that there are many times that he does struggle to specifically trust in God's promises. And Sarah as well uh, is a character that we are introduced to straight away in this chapter. And she's also been similar to Abraham. There's also been times where Sarah, there's been a specific time where Sarah has laughed at the possibility of of God providing a son. And it's interesting that we see Abraham names his son Isaac. And you could actually say that God has a little bit of a sense of humor here. The name Isaac actually means he laughs. And that would really be a constant reminder to Abraham and Sarah throughout their lives that the son that they had had was one in which they had laughed when God had said that he could provide him to them. But if you look down particularly at verses 6 and 7 with me, we particularly see a, a big, big change in what's happened to Sarah. So what we see here in verse 6, Sarah said, God has brought me laughter And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham, Abraham, that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I've borne him a son in his old age. 
And this contrast we're seeing is that although Sarah had the laughter of doubt, that laughter has now turned to laughter of joy. She was laughing almost in disbelief when she was told that she'd be able to have a son. And now she praises God. Now her laughter is a laughter that, look, my God has provided for me. God has changed her from somebody who doubts to somebody who delights. God shows that he is a promise keeper. If we look back to verse 1, we see God is described as gracious, and he's proved that. He's proved that he's not only kept his promise, but he's proved that he's a God of grace. But it's often so hard for us to actually trust God's promises, isn't it? I wonder if you're a Christian here tonight, if you're anything like me, in the fact that we so often struggle to have faith in God's word, just like Abraham and Sarah. Now, we may not laugh out loud when we hear God's word or God's promises to us, but actually, what is our attitude like when we hear that? So often I find that I know the promises of God, but actually, in the way that I act in my life, in the way that I feel, it's almost like a laughter, because I'm struggling to believe what God can do. Maybe um, we're faced with the promise that our identity is found in God, God alone, As Christians, we know that God says that our identity is set in him. Yet, why do I so often struggle? And why do I so often try to find my identity in my friends or in how other people perceive me? Maybe I know the promise that God will provide all I need. And yet, when I watch television or I see any any adverts, I look at those things and I want them for myself. I wonder whether they will make me more complete than God can. And our faith can so easily be shaken by promises that God has given us that we sometimes struggle to believe. And I'm not belittling our suffering here. There are people here um, I know that will be going through great times of struggling. And in those times, it is hard to genuinely trust in God's promises. It's really hard, particularly when we have to wait for God's promises to be fulfilled. And it's also very hard when we struggle to see how he specifically will fulfill them, when they seem unlikely that he can. But there's a wonderful part um, in the book Pilgrim's Progress, which is written by John Bunyan. Uh, Essentially, Bunyan writes this book, um, and the character in it is a character called Christian. And he relates, as Bunyan says, to Christians um, today. And there's this point where Christian is with his friend Hopeful, and he's journeying through life. And they come to Doubting Castle. And there's a point where they actually come into Doubting Castle, and they're trapped in this dungeon. This dungeon of doubt, this dungeon of disbelief, of struggling to have faith. And they're there for quite a while, and they seem to be losing hope. But there's a great point where Christian turns to his friend Hopeful, and he remembers. He says, Why on earth have we been sitting here? He says specifically, what a fool I've been lying in this stinking dungeon when I could be free. I have a key called promise that will open any lock in Doubting Castle. And what Bunyan's speaking about here is that in our lives as Christians, we so often will be faced with doubt. It so often will sometimes feel like we are literally locked in a dungeon of doubt where it's so, so hard for us to trust in God's promises. And yet, we have the promises of God, which we know that he has proven that he will provide for us and that he will actually keep his promises. And they can unlock our doubt. 
That doesn't mean that it's just a magic key, that as soon as we're struggling and we're faced with doubt, that we can immediately turn on a switch and start to suddenly be Christians with faith. But it is an example that God has given us, that he provides for us in his promises. He's already proven that he is a God who holds his promises, and he can take us from people that doubt to people that delight in his promises. The lesson that God has proved here, or the lesson that God's given us here, is that he's a promise-keeping God. So when we're faced with the daily temptation to doubt God's promises, we can remember that he's already proved that he keeps those promises. Doubt is to be expected in the Christian's life, but when faced with it, our laughter can be a laughter of joy because the promises we've already seen God fulfill. However, Isaac isn't actually the culmination of the promise that's given to Abraham. So before we get ahead of ourselves, God's actually promised a great nation. And that actually means that Isaac will obviously have to grow to have a family. So our second point is provides. So Isaac actually begins his life uh, as a healthy child, as God provides for the chosen son. He's weaned, um, which may be in our modern day uh, terms would be more like potty training. But Abraham's obviously delighted with God's provision, and he throws a celebration. But we see, however, God's word is fulfilled in a different sense. If you remember back in Genesis 16, Abraham and Sarah particularly conspired because they didn't believe that God could fulfill his promise of giving them a son. So what they specifically did is they tried to fulfill that promise themselves. Not fully believing in God, Abraham sleeps with Sarah's servant, Hagar, and she becomes pregnant. And after she's become pregnant, we see that Sarah um, obviously is the one that's told um, Abraham to sleep with her, and Hagar starts to despise Sarah. And what this leads to is Sarah begins to mistreat Hagar. And that actually happens to the point that Hagar flees from the family. She doesn't feel safe anymore. Even though these are God's promised people, she doesn't feel that it's her home. And what we have as she flees is that God actually interjects. He goes and speaks to Hagar. And he specifically promises her that she will give birth to a boy. Now, although that boy will not be the chosen son that God has promised to Abraham, he still will have descendants. That promise is given specifically to Hagar. But we also see an interesting um, promise that God gives as well in verse 12 of chapter 16, that actually this son will live in some kind of hostility to his brothers. And that actually is fulfilled here in chapter 21. So if you look down with me um, at verse 9, Sarah saw the son who Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham was mocking. There's a clear tension here between Ishmael and between Isaac. We clearly see that throughout the Bible. There are many times where there's hostility between brothers. And what we see specifically here is Sarah asks, she demands that actually Ishmael and Hagar are sent away. Now, this is quite um, a strange thing for us to see here, if we're honest. It's something that I did wonder about as I was reading the text, because what it seems here is that Sarah isn't being merciful. It seems that actually, as she says this, it's quite a horrible thing to say. And actually, it's even stranger that even though Abraham is distressed, God actually grants the wish of Sarah to her. And that really asks the question of God. Why does God allow that to happen? 
But what God is specifically doing here is he is providing for Isaac. And what he's actually providing is protection, protection from hostility. We see clearly, specifically through Genesis, that there are many examples of brothers having hostility because of promises. Esau wanting to kill Jacob, Joseph's brothers wanting to kill him and going to kill him at one stage. And they're actually examples of blood brothers. Now, if you have a brother yourself or if if you have two younger sons, that might be something you're used to, two brothers at war. But there is a serious point to this, that Isaac is God's chosen son. And for the promises to be fulfilled, he must go on to have a family. So it is vital that he is protected and that there is no way that he can come to harm. And Ishmael possesses a threat in many terms here. And what's really important to see here is that there is a clear and definite separation between Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael is a son that Abraham and Sarah had had through their own works. But Isaac is a son that they have had through faith. They are the, he's a son that they've had through faith in God's promises. And God is specifically providing for the chosen son here. We see if you look in verse 12... God says, it's through Isaac that Abraham's offspring will be reckoned. He is classed as one of God's people. Now, Ishmael is not one of God's chosen people. And although Abraham is distressed, as we read in verse 11, about the thought of Ishmael being sent away, God reveals that there will be a provision of sorts for Ishmael. And Hagar had actually also been given this promise, as I said earlier, in Genesis 16. And as we read through the text, we see that actually Hagar forgets this. She finds it hard to see when she's faced in being in the desert with no water and no seeming hope. She forgets the promise of God. Yet God still provides. Now, it's important to see here that God provides for Ishmael's physical needs. Ishmael isn't the chosen son that God spoke about, but he provides for the physical needs of Ishmael. And that directly applies to mankind today. We find later in, Je- uh, in uh, Galatians 4 that the example of Ishmael and Isaac is used through their mothers. Now, God's people are right with God through faith, and that's what Isaac is meant to represent. However, there are those who instead rely on their own works, and that's represented through Ishmael. And we're shown a clear distinction between the two. And God provides for both, but the provision that he gives is very, very different. Now, Ishmael is provided for his physical needs. If you look down to verse 20, we see that God is with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. We see that Ishmael begins to have descendants, begins to have a family, and God also provides for his physical needs with the water. But it's only the physical needs that God provides Ishmael with. However, Isaac is defined as God's chosen one, as his chosen people. And we, uh, as humans, will either be living a life of faith in Christ, as Isaac represents, or we'll be living like Ishmael, separate from the family of God, receiving God's gifts in the world, but not being part of his family. So God's proved so far that he's kept his promises and he's also provided and he's provided especially for his chosen people. 
However, Abraham's also been promised blessing, and he's also been promised a land. And we see that as we come to our third point, prospered, in verses 22 to 34. So the last that we'd seen of Abraham um, was uh, in the chapter before, as Daph spoke to us uh, last week on, and it was that he wasn't fully trusting in God. He wasn't fully trusting in God's protection of him. And he actually says that Sarah is his sister. It's the second time that he does that, the second time he makes that mistake. And Kim, King uh, Abimelech, who we're introduced to in uh, chapter 20, he actually takes Sarah, believing her to just be Abraham's sister, But God comes to him in a dream, and God tells him that Sarah is indeed the wife of Abraham instead, and warns him. And Abimelech does dutifully give Sarah back to Abraham. And we actually see that Abraham profits materially from Abimelech. So if you look at chapter 20 and verse 14, we see that Abraham receives from Abimelech. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham. And he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. Now, this is something specifically that it's important for us to note. There's not in Scripture at all anything that says that as Christians we are to sin to prosper. But what we see here is that despite Abraham's sin, God still prospers him. Even though Abraham wasn't trusting in God, God still used this situation to prosper and to prove to Abraham his promises. And what we actually see here is that Abimelech, when we come to chapter 21, he recognizes that God is with Abraham. Look down with me at verse 22. Abimelech says, God is with you in everything that you do. Abimelech recognizes immediately that Abraham is blessed by God. He has God on his side. And what that leads to is verse 23, as Abimelech almost pleads for a treaty to be made between Abraham and himself. It's really, really strange that Abraham's gone from being a nomad, from being a man with no land, to somebody who's regarded by, as a, by a king. A king is coming to somebody who is formerly without a home and is asking that they might have a treaty. This shows God's protection of Abraham. He's began to prosper him. And what we see in verse 24 is that Abraham agrees to this treaty. And the two men um, actually uh, plan out and uh, arrange this treaty between them. And what Abraham actually does um, with this is he uses the opportunity to secure land in the form of the well that he had built. So God clearly prospers Abraham in this. But let me be clear here that being a Christian does not promise you in any shape or form material gain. Anyone who says that is definitely not speaking the true gospel. What God does promise is that he'll give his people all that they need but he doesn't promise that through faith in him we will be given material things. He instead promises that we will get everything that is needed in this life. But sometimes he does choose specifically to prosper us materially, to prove that he loves us, to prove that he is with us, to prove that he is a loving God. And the key really here is in our reactions to when we prosper. So look down to verse 33 
we see that Abraham has now had this treaty. He has now began to prosper through God's promises. So he plants a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the eternal God. And this is the mark of what Abraham's faith was in. Abraham did have faith that God would prosper him through his promises. Because if he had been trusting in himself, he would have automatically wanted to give himself the glory. But instead, he turns to the one who he believes brought it about. He turns and gives glory to God, the one who prospered him, the eternal God. And that really raises the question to us of who do we praise when we prosper? I know so often in my own life when there are times that I've been blessed with things in life, I realize after a while that I've forgotten to thank God for it. It's so easy to not praise him because it's so easy to put faith in ourselves. Some of you may remember um, at the last Olympics, um, there were two American divers who um, actually got a medal and they were interviewed after their dive. And it was so striking because both of them were giving so much glory to God. There was such little recognition for what they'd done and what they'd actually achieved, but all their recognition went to what God had given them. A mark of our faith is shown in who we praise when we prosper. The giver actually becomes more important to us than the gift itself. So Abraham has seen that God can prove that he's kept his promises, that he keeps his promises, and he's also provided for his people, and he's also prospered them. But these promises haven't been fully fulfilled by the end of this chapter. So when can we actually expect that to happen? Well, in reality, Abraham would not see those promises ultimately fulfilled. He would not see his descendants as many as the stars in the sky, and he wouldn't see his name particularly regarded as great. He would not see how all peoples on earth would be blessed through him. But what he had been given is a small, small snapshot, a small view into the future, through Isaac being born, that those promises would be fulfilled. And God's promises are finally fulfilled in Jesus. Through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, Jesus provides a blessing to all people on earth. He established his kingdom as a great nation, and he gives Abraham a great name. It was with the coming Christ that Abraham had faith in, though he didn't know him by name. But Abraham particularly had faith that God would keep his promises. And God did. And the way that God did that was through Christ. That's how Abraham was judged by God to be righteous. That's how he was judged to have faith in God. And the great blessing for us is that actually, unlike Abraham, we live after the coming of Christ. Now, this table represents Jesus' death. And if you're a Christian here, you can see that God has proved that he keeps his promises because he's given his son to die for us. Romans 8 verse 32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? We can often struggle to have faith in God's promises and instead trust the promises of the world. Daph was speaking about this morning that the world so often says that there are many different truths that we can believe in. 
But the promise of the gospel, the promise that this table brings, is like water to a man dying of thirst. And the promises of the world are like poison. They may at the time seem attractive, they may at the time seem to actually benefit us, but they will lead to death. Because no promise in this world can actually answer the question that all of us are going to die. But God has provided for his people, and we are reckoned, along with Isaac, as people through faith, if we're trusting in Christ. We can actually be prospered knowing that God has kept all his promises to us. And this should lead to us to have a response like Abraham, that we call upon the name of the Lord. This should lead to us, like Sarah, going from people who will maybe laugh in disbelief to laughing with joy because God has kept his promises. We can actually call upon the name of Jesus Christ, God's eternal son who he sent down to become man and to die for us. And we can trust in the promises of the Bible because if God gave his son, if he gave his very only son to die on the cross and he kept that promise, he's proved that he can keep all of his promises. Now, if you're not a Christian here tonight, then we did see Ishmael. And what we saw with Ishmael is God did provide for Ishmael. God specifically said that Ishmael would have descendants. And he also provided for Ishmael's physical needs. He provided water for Ishmael, and he later provided a wife. But that's where the blessings stop. So God provided for Ishmael in a worldly sense, but Ishmael was not part of God's chosen family. And if you're not a Christian here tonight, then God has blessed us all with this world. So often I think the view of Christians is that uh, Christians hate sex, and they hate money, and they hate any kind of fun. But God has given these things to us to enjoy. And he, if you are not a Christian, he's given you the blessing of this world, of things that you can delight in, of things that you can um, have pleasure in. But if you are not a Christian, then that is where the prospering uh, stops. God gives you that blessing, but you're not part of his family. The only way that you can be part of God's family is represented at this table. It is putting your faith in Jesus Christ as the only way that you can be right with God. It is admitting that you are a sinner and that actually you deserve, because you have turned away from God, to face his punishment. But through the body of Christ and through the blood of Christ, you can actually be declared innocent in God's eyes through Jesus. And that is the call that is given to you even tonight. Even tonight at this table, you can turn and say, actually, God, I know that I've sinned. I know that um, there have been things I've done that have rejected you. And I see that you've blessed me with the things that you've given me in this world. And I thank you for that. I thank you for the things that you've given to me. But I can see through them that they alone are not enough. They alone cannot satisfy me. They alone can't answer the question of what happens once I die. But at this table, that question is answered. Because we can be given a hope of heaven. Hope of an eternity with Christ. And if you're not a Christian, I would ask that you consider that, that you look at the life of Christ and that you take him up on that offer to have eternal life through him. And for those of us that are Christians, to end, we can often have an approach that I so often have myself, that I can look at the world 
and I can see the blessings that people have in um, the world and in pleasures of this life. And because so many of my non-Christian friends and family seem to have so many things, I can forget that they have a real need. I can forget that their biggest need is that they must have a relationship with God and they, they must be in his family. The reality is that they need Christ. They need the promise of salvation through Christ because without that, then they face a destiny of hell. So we must go out and tell them the gospel. It's something that I so often don't do well enough and, that I, pr- and I pray that God would help me to continue to do that, to continue to go out and want to actually spread the gospel and to be able to do it effectively. It's a call that we have as a church to go out into this local area, to go out where we work, to our families, to our friends, and to tell people of the good news that God keeps his promises and that he's promised that through faith in his son, we can be part of his family. That's the gospel that we have. That's the gospel that we can't move past. The gospel that must always be central. God is a God that keeps his promises. He's proved that he's kept his promises throughout the whole of the Bible. So we can trust that he'll keep his promises in future. He's also provided for his people specifically through those promises. And he also prospers them. And through all those promises, we can say to him, thank you, Lord. And we can praise him as the everlasting God, our God, who loves us and calls us into fellowship and communion with him. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for, uh, for all of your word. And Lord, we see throughout your word so many promises that are uh, given to us. And if we admit, sometimes it's hard for us to, um, to keep faith in those promises. Sometimes we have doubt. Sometimes we are prone to unbelief. But I pray that you would help us to see in your word that you've proved that you keep your promises. You've kept them. You kept them to Abraham and Sarah. You kept them throughout Scripture. And Lord, we also see that you have specifically provided for us as your chosen people. You've provided for us to be part of your family. And you also prosper us, Lord. And I pray that through all those things, we would be led to praise you and glorify you. That we might call you our Father, that we might call you the everlasting God, our God, through Jesus. I pray that if there's anybody here that is not one of your people who is not trusting in Jesus, that they would turn to you even tonight, that they would long to be part of your family, that they would long to be um, at this table with us, giving their life to you and trusting that you are the only way that they might be saved. I pray that you'd help us as we go out into the world and as we go out into our weeks to remember that you are a promise-keeping God. It's part of your character. And we know that through your promises, you have rescued us and you've brought us into your family and into communion with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are going to um, sing in response to that. Um, And the song we're going to sing is called, Now Why This Fear? And it speaks about the fear and unbelief that so often as Christians we can face. But what the song goes on to speak about is the hope that we have through Christ and how all of our trust can be in him. 
Um, and at the end of the service, um, I'm going to be just uh, through the Artisan Lounge, just past the reception, and I'll be happy to speak to anybody, whether a Christian uh, struggling to um, believe in the promises of God, or a non-Christian who wants to respond uh, to this message. Um, and I pray that we would respond to this message. So please uh, stand as the musicians begin. <laughs>